Life Audio. Hello and welcome to Kainos Project. I'm Dale. And I am Tamara. And we're here to help you tackle ancient truths in everyday settings. Well, it's a new year. It's a new Kainos Project. Yep. Actually, that's not true. We're very much similar to what we were before. Yeah, we're not changing. <laughs> you know <laughs> what else? We just did that, right? Yeah. We just went from her and him to Kainos Project. Can we please not change again? <laughs> right. I don't want any of your brilliant ideas. <laughs> I have a lot of brilliant ideas. I don't want them. I don't want them. You know what else hasn't changed in the year of our Lord, 2023, is that, did you know this, that even to this day, the question of how bad chattel slavery was in America is still a question that is very much a live debate. I think it's become more of a alive <laughs> in its debating recently um, as people are finding and undigging the past of uh, people we hold in high regard and realize, wow, they had some real dark skeletons in their closet, specifically in relation to their support of slavery. Yeah, I mean, this is a, a conversation a lot of people have been having for a long time, but it is reaching uh, a cultural inflection point, right? Um, as it does every so often. And there's actually been a few different conversations on this topic swirling about within the past year or so. But I wanted to talk about one that has recently become relevant uh, at Princeton University, which, uh, if you didn't know, is actually a school way back when that was founded as a Christian institution. And, it, and it's no longer that, by the way. <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, it still has a seminary and things like that, but it's very much on a progressive side of things. Uh, but this story relates to a statue standing outside one of the buildings at Princeton depicting a man named John Witherspoon. Now, John Witherspoon, who lived uh, in 1723 is when he was born. He died in 1794, so he was in the powdered wig era of the world, <laughs> which was... An unfortunate fashion era. choice, yeah. My favorite era for men. Yeah, but he was actually one of the founding fathers of America, and he was the sixth president of Princeton. And he served as president of the university for roughly 25 years, and he's actually credited with bringing back the, the school from financial collapse. It wasn't called Princeton at that time. I, I, it was called, like, School of New Jersey or something like that. I can't remember exactly what the original name was. Uh, additionally, he was a local pastor, um, he was actually in the leadership, uh, some of the founding leadership of the Presbyterian Church in the United States of America, uh, but he was also a slaveholder uh, to two slaves, and he lectured and advocated against, and vo actually voted against, abolition in uh, the state of New Jersey. And so because of this, a group of 300 people, mostly graduate students, uh, they want that statue taken down and replaced um, with something else that is a little bit more honest about his relationship with uh, slavery. Um, and in response to that petition, there's this group called uh, Princetonians for Free Speech that are petitioning against the petition, so they wanted to stay up. Um, and they actually had uh, pastor and theologian Kevin DeYoung, who's a widely respected evangelical author, speaker, pastor, uh, they had him write an article outlining, outlining Witherspoon's life and kind of a, a history of his life and his thoughts on slavery in defense of keeping this statue up. And so I wanted to take a closer look at that 
and all the implications around that and the conversation that has ballooned around that. Uh, but we'll dive into that in just a moment. So we're talking about this statue of John Witherspoon, who was uh, a famous theologian. He was a founding father, um, and he was a former president of Princeton. And there's a statue of him at Princeton that some are wanting to take down. And there are those who are advocating that it remain up. Uh, and one of those is Kevin DeYoung. Uh, but this whole controversy and this lengthy article that um, DeYoung wrote have actually kind of tapped into something that's somewhat of an ongoing conversation in white evangelicalism about how bad slavery actually was. Like, no one denies that slavery was bad, at least not, you know, anyone that we would want to talk to. There are actually people in the evangelical sphere like, well, it actually wasn't, you know, what people say it was, uh, but we won't talk about those people today. Like, but most people say, like, yes, slavery was bad, um, but the question is, like, you know, how bad? Like, do we really need to cancel some of our favorite theologians just because uh, they enslaved people and fought to keep the institution of slavery alive? Uh are they canceled? Should they be canceled? Uh, and that's something of a, of a broader debate that's happening. And so this argument that Kevin DeYoung makes in this article called John Witherspoon, colon, President and Patriot, um, it's essentially, it, he argues that while chattel slavery was an evil, uh, when it comes to how we evaluate theologians who were alive during antebellum times, it's not necessarily a disqualifier forgetting a statue in your honor that will stand for centuries to come. And it's also interesting to note in this conversation that DeYoung actually earned his PhD in early modern history focusing on the theology of John Witherspoon. So he's something of a Witherspoon expert. And so he offers this uh, kind of retelling of Witherspoon's life and his history and things like that. Um, he was asked to, to write this by the Princetonians for Free Speech. Um you know, in defense of, of this statue and the Prisonians for free speech, they, they're advocating for the statue to remain because they believe that taking it down would, quote, be or, quote, have a deleterious effect on free speech, academic freedom and viewpoint diversity, end quote. And so he, I wanted to read you some of what uh, DeYoung wrote in the article, and we'll link to this in the show notes as well. But here's what DeYoung writes. It says, quote, It is often said that Witherspoon's relationship to slavery was complicated, and I suppose that's true insofar as most human beings are complicated, especially as they relate to the contested moral issues of their age. At the same time, Witherspoon's views on slavery were fairly straightforward. He believed that bringing people into slavery was wrong, except for as a punishment for crimes, that slaves and black people should be treated with decency and dignity, that immediate abolition on a personal and national scale, would likely do more harm than good, and that slavery would soon disappear in America. In all these views, and in his personal practice, Witherspoon was typical of many educated men in Britain and in America, and more enlightened than several of our most famous founders." End quote. And so he goes on to describe some of the notable things that, that Witherspoon did uh, in his interactions with the institution of slavery. And one of those uh, was this case of uh, a runaway enslaved man named James Montgomery. And while Witherspoon didn't advocate for Montgomery's freedom per se, uh, he did baptize him in his church. And then he sent him back to Glasgow where his, um, his trial was going to be. And he was gonna, actually going to stand trial and, and um, argue for his own emancipation. 
And the key to that case, DeYoung argues, is that um, apparently if Montgomery was a Christian, he could make the legal argument that if he is free in Christ, why should he be enslaved to men? And unfortunately, Montgomery died in prison before he could ever make his case in court. Um, but that's kind of like one of the the things that he outlines as, you know, you know, Witherspoon, he kind of had a complicated relationship with slavery. And so maybe we should give him a pass on taking a statue down. Uh, and in summarizing Witherspoon's views on slavery, DeYoung writes and quoting some of Witherspoon's own words, he says, in conclusion, Witherspoon allowed that it was not necessary to free men already in a state of slavery because this would, quote, make them free to their own ruin. Still, quote, it is very doubtful whether any original cause of servitude could be defended, but as legal punishment for the commission of crimes, end quote. And so Witherspoon, he voted against emancipation and abolition, uh, but he did advocate for, quote-unquote, humane treatment of enslaved people insofar as you can enslave people and still treat them humanely. Uh, I guess just don't beat them or rape them let them sleep indoors, those kinds of things. And he also actually personally tutored free black men at Princeton. And he didn't want any new slaves to be added to the slave trade. So he wasn't an advocate of like the transatlantic slave trade. He, he thought that that was an evil. He just thought that the people that were already enslaved should stay enslaved. And so DeYoung's argument is essentially that while Witherspoon was complicit and really he was guilty in the sin of slavery, he didn't actively advocate for it, even though he advocated against its removal, uh, and he was at least nice to the slaves uh, that he had and thought others should do the same. So at the end of the day, you know, Witherspoon's view on slavery isn't as big of a deal as many people are making it out to be. Um, and he's just a product of his time. That's that's a common argument. He was a he was a man of his time, and so all of this is in defense of keeping this statue up, uh, standing outside uh, a building at the school, um, which was first founded as a Christian university. Um, and this kind of gives the implication that Witherspoon is not only like an American hero, but because of his theological contributions. He's also something of like a Christian hero or a Christian icon of sorts. And so um, this is an argument that's not necessarily a new argument, but it's, it's one being made as of like last week. And so there are some other evangelical leaders that have responded to that. Uh, I'll read the responses of a couple of them. This one's from Dwight McKissick. He's a pastor in Texas. He's a pastor of an SBC church. Um, and he says, white rationales for the defense of slave owners, particularly from evangelicals, are astonishing to me. A man who owns slaves and justifies it by them being well-fed, clothed, and incapable of living free lives is supremacist, disobedient to scripture, and undeserving of a statue. And Duran Gray, who's actually a former NFL player, uh, turned pastor, and he also has a doctorate of ministry degree, uh, he said, reading this was disheartening. There is no defense of antebellum slavery. It must be condemned. And so, Tamara, as you look at this argument from DeYoung, what are your thoughts? Do you think that this statue should be taken down, that that's something that we should, you know, is a good thing that, that would happen? Or should it remain, are we erasing history by taking it down? What are your thoughts? 
So there's a lot more questions than just the ones you asked, right? There's how do you view people that came before us and their contributions to the world, even as they had some blatant moral failures? And as we talk about morality, how much can you judge a person or uh, what kind of standard are you holding a person to when it comes to morality if the morality surrounding them was one set way and in terms of like that was just the water they were swimming in? Um, or is there like this absolute morality that regardless of culture and time and society, someone should be upheld to that true sense of morality? So... That is a hard question to decipher because people are complicated and you can see when we're talking about Witherspoon and his, um, his view on slavery, it was complicated. He didn't, he wasn't against it, but he wasn't for it. Like there were some benefits to him, I'm sure that allowed him to continue to have his own um, people enslaved, but then he was also kind of getting some kind of a golden star because he wasn't asking for it to continue and he wasn't asking for new slaves to be brought in, but only in terms of slavery being a response of, um, punishment in terms of if you did a crime, right? So it's hard to find a measure at which we look back on previous, people, heroes, people who had some significant contributions and say, here's the measurement. If they agree with any of these things, uh, then we should completely cancel them. I, it's really easy to look that way hindsight, right? It's really easy to make it um, black and white. Either you supported it or you didn't support it. And if you did support it, then you should have absolutely no voice in today. I think that becomes a bit of a self-righteous understanding of humanity in general. But we also should not give passes for evil. And I think that's my big issue with DeYoung's article and his write-up is he's, he's trying to give Witherspoon a pass. He's trying to justify him. He's trying to say, look, like, but he also did these great things even within the world of slavery Instead of calling evil what it is, and that's evil, any kind of slavery, <laughs> whether you're whether you're giving them like a warm shed to stay in instead of having them stay outside, it like that's still evil. You are still owning another person. And so that's a clear line of we should not support that in any way, shape, or form. And it is concerning and disheartening that DeYoung doesn't call out sin for what it is and doesn't call out evil for what it is. But I do struggle with the idea of then completely canceling someone. Like we shouldn't be reading them anymore. We shouldn't be talking about them anymore. Uh, The whole statue things like that's a whole nother conversation because why are we making icons out of anyone? Right. Right. I mean to make a statue out of someone is to make an icon out of them, to call forth this remembrance of them. But I guarantee you any statue around the world, you could dig into that person's past and find some pretty ugly stuff that would justify you taking down a statue of them. Now, I don't want to make a blanket statement and say 
well, the um, con- contribution into slavery is the same as someone lying, right? Like you, right, <laughs> you're owning yeah. a person. So I don't want to make light of that in any way. I don't want to say like, it's just something that happened. It didn't harm anyone. No, like he was harming lives. Actively. Yeah. Right. Uh, yeah. Um, and he, in this time, he had the choice to vote against slavery and he didn't. Right. He, and not only did he vote against abolition, he like lectured right. against it. Yeah. Advocated so, against it. So that's another that's another issue in de Young's article, particularly as we're analyzing uh, the life of Witherspoon, is we should never try and justify evil. We should never try and justify sin. And I understand to some degree the product, like someone's a product of their time. Um, I can only imagine what is it going to look like 20 years from now? And what things did we say that were a product of our time? Um, but that doesn't give you a pass for evil. Right. Yeah. There's two things I want to respond to in what you just said. Uh, but we'll dive into that in just a moment. So, yeah, you said like a lot of like really good stuff, like in terms of like um, we don't want to erase history. Um, we don't want to put unfair uh, modern lenses uh, in terms of how we understand right and wrong and project that back onto the past as they should have known better. Um, but there's kind of two things in that that I wanted to point out. The first thing is like the whole like man of his times argument. Like that's the big argument. Like nobody knew any better that this was wrong. Everybody was doing it. Literally millions of people were enslaved. Slavery was a hallmark of basically every civilization leading up to this point in one form or another, some kind of indentured servitude, things like that. Uh, but it is worth noting this whole like man of his times argument that there were people on both sides of the pond that were from a theological perspective arguing for emancipation and abolition. Right. So like John Wesley mm-hmm. was an agitator um, and was actually, you know, a, a key figure in the abolitionist movement in the UK and the UK um, uh, abolished slavery about 30 years before we did here in America. But there were others here in America at the same time that uh, Witherspoon was arguing for slavery or against emancipation rather um that we're arguing for abolition from a very theological perspective so we can kind of start to poke holes a little bit in the man of his time argument in that there were people who did know better and at the very least witherspoon had the opportunity to know better Mm -hmm. uh in that and i think the second thing is this that um drilling into the details of what the petition to take it down actually uh were So they wanted to take down this statue, which is basically, you know, this giant bronze statue of um, Witherspoon as this hero who saved Princeton, who's a founding father, who's this great icon of the faith and da 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 such and such. And they wanted to take that down, but they also wanted to put something in its place remembering Witherspoon still. Uh, But the the language in that uh, memorial would be a little bit more of a nuanced reflection on who he was. So like... To, to note the things that he did and why he is historically significant, uh, both in the life of 
Princeton as a school and the life of the country at large, uh, but also acknowledge the fact that he advocated against emancipation and that he did, in fact, uh, enslave two people um, that uh, while he was president of Princeton. And so um, those are kind of like two things there that kind of add a, a layer of complexity to that. So like, uh, not that you're like oversimplifying or anything, but like there is there is more to, to poke into like, well, that was, you know, back in the day and who knew so, that yeah. enslaving people was wrong. So I don't even think the man of like to use that, well, they're just a man of their time and like we just don't hold anyone accountable. I actually don't agree with that argument. Mm. I think there are a lot of um, shortcomings within the within that argument, especially as you look at Witherspoon, who again had the opportunity to stand against it and it was very much part of the turn of the culture in that time because you had people fighting for the emancipation and you had people fighting for like I understand this is the way the world is working but it shouldn't be working that way and he was living in that time and he still chose not to stand up for what is right in in that time so I don't agree with the blanket. He's a man of his time. We can't hold him accountable because he was just thinking the way everyone was thinking. Um, because then there's there's no sense of accountability for any of our history. If you do that, you you can't hold anyone to any kind of a moral regard. And you just, yeah, you're just like, well, that's just what it was. No big deal. Like, no, lives were lives were taken. I mean, within slavery itself. I mean, how many lives were lost and it, it goes more than just the mistreatment of people and the inhumanity of it. Like there's a fundamental problem with one person saying I'm going to own another person. Right. Yeah. And I, I also kind of take exception with the characterization uh, that Witherspoon had a complicated relationship with slavery. Like you, you owned people like this. That does not you argued against them being set free. Like that's not very complicated. Well, and I think some of his stance on it of, okay, I will continue to own my slaves, but but I'll be a good person and treat them well, and I won't advocate for more people becoming enslaved, but I'm also not going to let go of this really nice benefit that I have personally. Um, so he was trying to play both sides. And I guess if you want to call that complicated, but in many ways, I'm sure there were a lot of um, a lot of aspects of that opinion that were beneficial to him personally. And that was really the truth for a lot of people back then. Like some people said, well, if you end slavery, then you're going to crash our economy. Like, oh, OK, that's why we're going to continue to mistreat people and say we own them because we're concerned about our economy people just didn't want to sacrifice what the uh, system of slavery had built up within their own personal lives, regardless of what the cost was for another life. Right. And I think that was a, a lot of Witherspoon's argument was that um, you, you can't just blow up the whole system here. Um, and, and he did seem to have the view that eventually slavery would need to end. And, um, so in that way, you could, and he obviously, as we said, advocated for quote unquote humane treatment of people who were enslaved. Um, so you could characterize him as somewhat of an incrementalist 
when it comes to abolition of slavery. Um, and you can even draw a parallel. Let's say, you know, pull pull the abortion debate of today. There are people in the pro-life movement who are incrementalists, who for the past 50 years, uh, when Roe was, you know, the, the law of the land, uh, were working for incremental victories that would um, decrease the abortion rate. And so uh, that has eventually you know, resulted in the overturn of Roe and that there, there's been some significant pro-life wins in recent years. Um, and then there's like the abolitionists, right, who say like we need to sign into law legislation right now that not only bans abortion but criminalizes the women who seek abortions, who criminalizes the doctors, the whole thing. And we basically like the death penalty is up for grabs in this because that's a murder of a life. Um you, you could say, and that's not the camp that I'm in, I'm more on the, the incrementalist side of like, how do we um, find ways of both, you know, limiting access to abortion, increasing uh, access to benefits that will decrease that number uh, of abortions anyway, but it's, it, it's more of an incremental approach to it. And so you can maybe draw a parallel there and say, well, Witherspoon was an incrementalist when it comes to the abolition of slavery, but he still own enslaved people right. and so like it would it, be like me being an incrementalist on the abortion debate but then still you know pressuring you to get two abortions it, there's right there's he, something not right there what he should have done right <laughs> it kind of feels weird saying like what someone else should have done but if he were following that kind of line of thinking of course we're not going to abolish slavery overnight so what are those small victories that we can move forward towards and one of those could be the humane treatment as in so far as you can even treat someone humanely while owning them uh, but then he should have no slaves he should not be the owner of any slaves he should have um, rectified that and still trying to move forward those incremental things um, but I think there's also just this larger conversation happening around uh, how do we view theologians? Um, I mean, right now we're we're speaking specifically within the evangelical world who have made some pretty massive contributions to the way that we understand scripture, to the way that the church is today. How do we view them? And he's not the only one that we can look to and be grateful for his theological contributions, but also look at other aspects of his life that did not fall in line with the uh, biblical view that he should have had. I mean, Martin Luther is a huge, huge example of someone that, I mean, the Reformation is massive within church history. That was a, a pivotal moment within church history. And we are all still living and and seeing the gains of his theological work, but he had a really dark piece of his life that a lot of times we either just want to gloss over and say like it didn't matter that he was anti-Semitic or it didn't matter that um, he said certain things about Jews and really in many ways called for the killing of lives uh, because, I mean, the Reformation, right? <laughs> right. So... How do we look at people that have made significant theological contributions or just significant contributions to the faith, but have also had some great shortcomings? And even shortcomings feels like a really light thing to say when it comes to like owning slaves, right? Right. Um, 
I think we have to continue to remember that even in the midst of um, God using people and that godliness kind of shining forth, there is a great measure of depravity that every person has. And we probably shouldn't call anyone a hero of the faith because anytime you look into their background, they absolutely fall shy of being a hero. Certainly God used them in some degree, but you cannot gloss over evil. You cannot gloss over sin. Like that's, that's unbiblical. Right. I mean, even King David, right? I'm, that's something else that is like so hard when we look at the Old Testament and we, we hold King David up to this high standard, but he, he raped and murdered. <laughs> did we forget he, that he had his own shortcomings you know yeah i mean no, yeah. well, well he did some great things for god like yes but it's just such a good reminder that there are no heroes of the faith the only one that we can look to to be an icon of our faith to be a hero of our faith is jesus himself because the depravity within man is so great and it's not just to chalk it up like well everyone sins no Call out evil for what it is and don't honor evil. Like, please don't honor someone who owned slaves. We can, what is that line where it's like, you you eat a fish and you spit out the bones. What's it called? Right, yeah. Eat the meat, spit out the <laughs> eat bones. Eat the meat, spit out the bones. Um, so we don't just want to continue to chew on the bones and say, oh, they're so tasty. Wow, we love these things. <laughs> like, please stop. Stop it. Like, we need to... Um, be grateful for contributions, but not honor them and make them icons um, because we're just afraid of somehow the faith falling. Like the faith is not on the shoulders of Martin Luther and Witherspoon. And oh my goodness, I know there are so many other names that we could call out right now. Right. But um, the faith is on the shoulders of Jesus himself. And we have to keep that in mind and be grateful for the contributions that people have made. But again, just not celebrate evil. Yeah. Going back to the statue itself. Um, there's obviously a lot of like, down. like <laughs> a lot of practical Sorry. things that kind of arise out of that. Um, kind of like if you look more broadly, even outside of just the, the American church or one uh, statue at Princeton, um, like how how far out do we take that? Like, um, because there's monuments to founding fathers and historic presidents, you know, all throughout this country, whether it be, you know, Thomas Jefferson, who owned slaves or whoever it might have been, these founding fathers who are responsible for the liberty that we experience today in many ways. Uh, but we're still oppressive to uh, black people and basically anybody who wasn't uh, Western European and white. Um, do we take down all of those monuments uh, to them and replace them? Or like, what does that look like? Or even like looking at like this, uh, this statue in, in Princeton, um, is it a different conversation if someone today is saying like, let's erect a new statue to Witherspoon that hasn't been here before? Um, is it easier to say no to that or, or is there some consideration like if a statue has been there for a period of time, is it a different conversation when you're take, tearing something down as opposed to if you were building a new monument to this person? What are your thoughts on that? Haven't you already asked me enough hard questions today? I don't understand why you have to keep going <laughs> more at me. This is rude of you. 
Um, yeah, it is definitely different to have the conscious thought and have the committee and put the funding behind putting up a statue today of someone that we know full well, their whole history, we know full well what was immoral and moral in their lives and to still choose to honor that actively without addressing the evils. So could there be a way for us to make statues that hold both of those things in tension? I think, yes, it probably like has some written stuff on it, right? Uh, That like explains we are honoring this person for this, this, and this, but we are not, um, we are not glossing over the fact that there were some very evils in this person's past. So I think there is a way to do it without having to go through and just erase history and pretend like there's there's nothing in our history that we want to remember and there's nothing in our history that we want to um, like pay tribute to. Um, because I, I just don't think that's the way Jesus works either. Right? I don't think he looks in any of our lives and says, well, you did some pretty great things for me, but here's all the sinful things that you've done. So we need to erase you. Uh, I don't agree with that idea of cancel culture because on the other side of cancel culture, those who are calling forth, like cancel him, there's a very self-righteous attitude about that. It's also to suggest I'm canceling you, but somehow I have it all together. Somehow I have nothing that you're going to cancel me for. Right. So then you're, it's just such a vicious game. But is there a way to still honor someone for the the specific contributions they made, um, but still hold intention the very dark side of their life? Yeah. The reason why I brought that question up is because, you know, this being on the campus of Princeton, I was like, well, how long has this statue been here? Like if it's been here for 100 years, you know, not that you shouldn't take it down, you know, they, that disqualifies you from taking it down. Um, but that is like a consideration, like maybe you just add something to it or amend it somehow. And so I'm like, oh, how long has this statue actually been here? And I found out that it was installed of November of 2001. Oh. And so I was like, oh, okay. And then also That's going back bad. to the cancels thing, they they still wanted to have a monument to Witherspoon there, just not the mm-hmm. current kind of, right. you know, whitewashed history yeah. of him. But yeah, I do think there is a, there is something to the whole like, and the, the physical monuments of our physical spaces like that's a part of our our culture and so our culture is ever evolving but we don't want to erase that history while also not glossing over or whitewashing uh the the parts of it that are detestable uh you know there's that phrase that you know uh the victors get to write the history and in many ways Mm -hmm. the victors have written the history and so how do we go about um you know rewriting that history in a way that's a little bit more honest um, that, but that doesn't completely take us down to the studs from our historical understanding of things. Uh, but yeah, this thing being, you know, put up in 2001, I'm like, oh, okay, this is like a new thing. This thing hasn't been here for 150 years and now someone's like finally wanting to take it down. Um, yeah. So I just thought that that was, you know, that, that, that to me is a, is a blow in favor of like, yeah, let's take it down and put something else there that maybe is still an homage to Witherspoon in some way. Um, but is very honest about the history of his own life and the history of Princeton as an institution, frankly, right. uh, because, you know, 
he personally reflects the, the culture of that institution at that time. Another follow-up question. Would it make a difference if the statue uh, were to a man who wrote, you know, quote-unquote, good theology and did important things in the life of the church, but instead of being an advocate for slavery and a slave owner, uh, was LGBTQ plus affirming? Okay, what is your question? Should we have a statue for this person? Yeah, so let's say Witherspoon didn't own slaves, but he was LGBTQ plus affirming. And he he made significant theological contributions. In yes, the same outs- way. outside okay. of that, and people are like, well, this is just that one thing. You know, we don't want to talk, yeah. talk about that kind of thing. Yeah, um, I think you're kind of with. I mean, this is different and the same. There, if you're holding someone as this hero of the faith, but there are aspects of their life that did not align to scripture and did not align to the biblical view, then I think you have to you have to hold that intention. You still have to say that, like, here is the truth about this person. Yeah, and so that question, you know, I just threw that at you, but it was <laughs> is is more of like a rhetorical question in a lot of ways of like, okay, so there are certain things that we're willing to make accommodations for, certain theological and moral maladies that were like, well, they did all these other great things, but you know, we'll just ignore this kind of thing over here. Whereas if you look at, you know, say theologians today who are LGBTQ plus affirming, um, who are maybe making strides and and saying some important things and uh, advancing some important causes uh, in our own day, um, there are those, typically the same people that want to keep up the statue of Witherspoon, who would say, that person's not even a Christian. Right. And so throw out all their books, discount any good thing that they've done, because they are so beyond the pale. In fact, there are some people who, if a theologian is not, even affirming but they are egalitarian they would say that person is a a threat to the gospel and so there's nothing good that they could contribute to the church and so you know we should just completely ignore them in every regard and yet these are the same folks that are saying let's keep a whitewashed uh statue of witherspoon even though he owns slave but you know it was a long time ago and that that was the culture of the day well what's the culture of today you know what I right. mean? Yeah. And so who's the man of our times now that we would not extend the same grace to on things that are, um, you know, outside the realm of what we would consider orthodox theology and um, and just right morality? Well, uh, that goes back to just a lot of the issues that we're facing today anyways, is you have these like polarized opinions of what is it to be a Christian and what is it to stand for the morality and righteousness of Christianity. But yet when it comes to conversations like this, like, oh, that's okay. He was just a slave owner. Um, but that's not okay. This person is like if he was same gay. sex. Yeah. Then like there are certainly holes in your view. Right. There are massive holes in the way that you are approaching uh, what is it to be a Christian and what is it to um, be a Christian that is still living in a world that has fallen. And we're all like wrestling with that together and to extend (laughs) to extend mercy and grace to one and not to the other is just a, a blatant contradiction in your own faith and in your own beliefs. And sometimes those are hard to look at. Right. Because we are living in our own time and we are living in just the confrontation and strife of our own time and everyone is just so pinned to one side or pinned to the other side. And if you are you have one view over here, then you need to be all in on this side. And if you have a view over here, you have to be all in on this side. 
but that doesn't leave room for grace and that actually doesn't leave room for a whole lot of uh, deep thinking and for your faith to change the way that you think. And ultimately, that is what our faith should do. Our faith should be changing our worldview rather than pinholing or pigeonholing is pigeonholing a word? I don't know. Mm-hmm. Uh, pigeonholing your your faith into the worldview that you already have. And it's hard. It's hard to see holes in your thinking. It's hard to see, oh, well, I guess that doesn't quite make sense, does it? Where I'm able to give grace and forgiveness here, but over here, I've become very pious and self-righteous. Um, that is where we need the work of the Holy Spirit to come through. And I th- it makes me think of that Psalm. Uh, gosh, what what number is it? <laughs> where <laughs> David is saying, like, look into my own heart. Oh, Psalm 139. Yeah. Look into my heart and show me any ways that are like grievances to you, O Lord. And we need to continue to reflect back instead of being so quick to read this article from DeYoung. Um, I know that when you shared this with me at first, I had my like opinion, like what in the world? How is he claiming slavery is okay? How are we justifying this? Like cancel it, take him down. Don't talk about him. But the more you kind of ponder and think about it and like bring it back down to reality in some way of the fact that we are humans and we fail, is that just the response for anyone? Great. Right. (laughs) I mean, Unfortunately, that is becoming a bit of a response for like fallen pastors who are doing some pretty egregious things in their Mm -hmm. congregations. They're like, well, they're just human. Sin happens. Like, maybe, no, no. Like, (laughs) we are supposed to attest sin. We are supposed to um, have such a hatred for sin. And that's what scripture talks about. Like, we should be sick to our stomach when we read about sin, when we learn about sin in someone's life. Um, but in the same, in this very same breath, there should be this sense of, of grace for that person, even though you're not accepting that sin. Um, I don't even know where I am anymore in my thoughts, but the reality is as we look and at these types of things and we have these types of conversations, I think we have to continue to reflect back and ask for the Lord to look at our own hearts and where is it that our our own hearts are misaligned? And I think in situations like this, where we're calling for a statue to stay and we're like bypassing the fact that he's a slaveholder, but we're like rioting and picketing and losing our minds over another statue being put up because someone's LGBTQ plus affirming, like that just doesn't align. Like there has to be some kind of um, consistency within your thought process. And ultimately we should look for that consistency to come from the leading of the Holy spirit and an analyzing of our own hearts. Yeah. And I think that definitely goes both ways. Like I think the people who, uh, look at Witherspoon and say he should, you know, be completely erased from the annals of history. There's nothing good that he could have ever contributed because, of his view on slavery and the fact that he was a slave owner are just as wrong as the people who would say that, you know, there's nothing that uh, this theologian over here could say that has any truth or any goodness or any weight to it because they're like openly gay. I think both of those 
the canceling of both ways right. is just as wrong. Uh, but when it comes to like statues and monuments, um, that's different from understanding history, right? Like, cause we can read history, you know, I can read the works of Witherspoon or Edwards, who was another, uh, slave owner, uh, or I can read, you know, the, uh, uh, queer affirming theologians of today and I can look at those things and I can say like this part this I can agree with this is insightful this you know edified me in some way and this other stuff not so much when it comes to like statues and monuments really what we're talking about is like values what is right. it that we value and are we conveying with this statue as it currently exists that um, that slavery wasn't you know a deal breaker and so is that the value that, that we want to put forth? And, you know, I have, you know, some strong inclinations against that, that, you know, not that, that he can't be remembered at all, but maybe if there is a, a monument, that that monument should reflect the values that we know now when we're in greater agreement on than we were back then, that um, that are reflective of, you know, the, the heart of Jesus. And... Um, I think that's different than like this, you know, th this whole like black and white of like canceling and erasing history kind of a thing. Um, like it's unhelpful to kind of frame it that way. Cause like, um, and bear, bear with me on this one. This is going to be an uncomfortable, if not gratuitous analogy here. Like if you go to Germany today, you would be hard pressed to find a statue of Adolf Hitler honoring his life and legacy like just with unilateral positivity. Right. Unless you're going to like a real sketchy neighborhood in like someone's courtyard that like you, you got to get out of there quick. Like you're not going to find it. You're not going to find a whitewashed history of, of Adolf Hitler in, uh, in Germany. Uh, even though get this, it could be argued that he did a lot of good for Germany while he was in power. Like under his leadership, the country pulled out of just a historic, and crippling economic depression. Did you know that he established uh, nature preserves? I didn't know that. To uh, save endangered species and to stop deforestation. Um, he expanded welfare, pro welfare programs to uh, low-income, albeit white, women and children. Uh, he catapulted the automotive uh, industry and automotive technology uh, by uh, supporting the founding of Volkswagen, and he also oversaw the Autobahn Project. Did you know that? I didn't. I had no idea until recently. Yeah. He accelerated military technology. Mm. But there was that thing where he murdered like at least six million people. Yeah. And so the point is this, like if, if you're an evil genius, like there's a certain point at which the evil outweighs the genius. And while because you were a genius, you will always be historically significant because you're evil you don't get to be a cultural icon. Hmm. And I think that that's where yeah. the problem lies. That's the line. Yes. But the hard thing is what is so evil? I mean, obviously everyone would agree Hitler, right? And well, unfortunately not everyone anymore, I, which I don't understand that. But anyways, Hitler, yes, <laughs> absolutely. That's just like another yeah. bizarre conversation anybody, that's happening. Anybody who we want to talk to. Yeah like the line most certainly was crossed with Hitler where others would say Witherspoon it wasn't crossed and that's hard what is that very fine like what is that very distinct line of your evil was so great 
that it cancels out all other things that you did. Right. Yeah. And so I use that example because like, it's you so know, extreme. He's, <laughs> he is the benchmark of evil. Yes. Like he is the standard of, of, yeah. of evil. Um, and so it, it kind of like in the most extreme sense kind of parses that out for you. And Witherspoon was, was no Hitler by any stretch of the imagination. But it's still no small thing to enslave other human beings and to advocate that other people should be enslaved. And again, like we said earlier, he wasn't the only one. Jonathan Edwards was... Um, that was the other name I was, was thinking of. Uh, a, a slave owner as well. Did you know that he was actually a president of, of Princeton too? Yes, I knew that much. Uh, he was the third president. I did not for all of 35 or 36 days. Mm-hmm. And then he died of smallpox. Short, yeah. And you know what? He didn't actually want to go to Princeton. He was like, mm, I don't know if I want to do it. And they said, you know what? Yeah, fine. I'll do it. So long as you like, don't give me too many teaching responsibilities so I can do, you know, my, my writing and things like that. He moved in a month later. He was dead. That's just, just a whole side note in itself. But Jonathan Edwards, um, one of like the 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 fathers of the evangelical movement as we know it today, along with George Whitfield, who was also pro slavery. Um, I mean, they're considered evangelical heroes. Uh, Martin Luther, you mentioned before, and so it 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 is complicated, like how we remember these people. I mean, especially not only as Americans, but as Christians, and then even more specifically as evangelical Protestant Christians. How do we? Uh, look back on these historically significant figures who had not just shortcomings, but significant proactive evils that they advocated for that, um, that we just, we just can't overlook those things. I mean, and certainly these guys, they contributed uh, a lot to our theological tradition and, and I would recommend reading them. I mean, like read Jonathan Edwards, read whatever George Whitfield wrote down, uh, read whatever Witherspoon put down, because that's that's if you're you know a part of this particular stream of Christianity that that we're in, that that is part of our theological lineage that informs who we are today in many ways. Well, and that too, I'm I know that you're on a roll here, so I'm so sorry for interrupting you, uh, but that too is a part of God's grace, right? I mean, the fact that He can use people. Um, still for the goodness of his own kingdom and to completely erase anyone who has said anything worth saying um, is also to make small of the power of God and the way that he works through uh, very corrupt and fallen people. Right. And we can even see that within our own time, like with Robbie Zacharias, right? Like that was such a huge conversation of, uh, do we stop listening to anything he's ever written? Like, do we stop uh, reading anything that he's ever contributed because of this horrendous secret that he was living with while doing all of these wonderful things for the kingdom of God? Uh, and I think that's just another element of it. I mean, I know people who said like, it was through the teachings of Ravi Zacharias that I came to faith and now it feels like a fraud. It's like, well, h- hold on, no. The word of God is still powerful and the Holy Spirit will continue to work through that in spite of the person that he's working through. Yeah, I mean, that's a really good one that you bring up because like even for me personally, I've read Ravi Zacharias books. I've purchased them. And so like I have contributed funds to the coffers that were used to oppress and abuse women. Obviously, I didn't know that that's what was happening at the time. And at the same time, a lot of the thoughts and words and things that he said and wrote were formative to me in my young faith. 
and still remain true. Um, but if someone was was gonna put up a Ravi Zacharias statue at some institution, you better believe I'll be opposed to it. Right. And so I think that's what it is when I go back to you know uh, Witherspoon, Whitfield, Edwards, the like. I mean, even looking at John Wesley, you know, he looks like the good guy in this conversation because he was an abolitionist. He had some weird stuff in his life too. Okay. Yeah. Like the all all these people did. If you look, if you take a real close look, and so I think. Um, yeah, it should maybe maybe we just shouldn't have statues to, <laughs> right. to well, Christian that's heroes. That's, that's going what going back to saying earlier. Like, what is the point of a statue? And should we really have icons and heroes at all? No. Like, let's make it simple, people. The only hero and icon we should have is Jesus himself. And like, let's just leave it at that. And it's far less messy. And we're actually being true to scripture and true to what our faith is in knowing that the only the only person we can look to who is flawless, who has no skeletons to dig out of his closet is Jesus. And that is the only one that we should make a hero and an icon out of. Like everyone else, like it's too messy. Just don't, just don't have any statues. Just read their stuff, learn from (laughs) them and don't build a statue. (laughs) And what's crazy is like, this is actually a, you know, a rich part of the Protestant tradition that the Protestant tradition was, was very much iconoclastic. Where you had all Icon these what? iconoclastic, okay. where you had all of these um, saints and these hagiographies that were memorializing them, and the Protestants looked at those and said, "This is whitewashed tombs. Like these people aren't in the place of God." And so there, there was a, a tearing down of a lot of the the iconography that came out of the Roman Catholic faith. But then give us a couple hundred years, and then all of a sudden we have our own icons. And now all of a sudden we're not iconoclasts anymore. And so we've fallen into much of the the similar thing. And I'm not here to cast aspersions on Catholics and things like that. And their cathedrals, I think, are beautiful and things like that. But like the the impulse behind that, I think is still a good impulse. And also to note too, like when uh, Protestants were um, moving out from the the Roman Catholic Empire, really – while they were iconoclasts, they were saying like these are whitewashed tombs that we we ought not to raise to a level above our own humanity. They also weren't throwing out all their history books either. Right. They were still very mm-hmm. much reading, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. you know, everything that's been written from uh, the Didache to the Church Fathers all the way up into their present time, and that was all still informing their theology and their tradition. Um, but there was just this impulse not to. Um, put humanity in the place of God or even in a place above humanity between humanity and God. And so if nothing else, maybe that's the lesson for us. Thanks for listening to the Kainos Project podcast. Thank you also to our partners at Life Audio. Visit lifeaudio.com to find dozens of other faith-centered podcasts in the network, including shows about prayer, Bible study, parenting, and more. If you enjoyed hanging out with us today, consider subscribing to the podcast and leaving a rating and review. And be sure to visit our website, kinosproject.com, for more helpful resources. Thanks again, and we'll see you next time.